Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. This week we commemorate the E-Type launch, remember Murray Walker and chat to former JEC chairman Peter Purdon. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to another episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, now episode 2 of series 2, or episode 39 if you've been with us from the very beginning. Hope you're well, Wayne Scott with you, on the week that the Jaguar E-Type was launched. And it wouldn't be right to record this podcast without remembering the E-Type and wishing it happy birthday. This week in 1961, 60 years ago, it was the Geneva Motor Show. And it was the moment that the world stood back and gasped quite literally at the brand new creation from Jaguar. The E-Type, of course, that Sir William Lyons unveiled in the restaurant to the press, about 200 of them in fact, It was the 15th of March, and uh, to remember those times and to remember that iconic car being born, really, I'm joined now by Graham Robson. Hi, Wayne. Uh, Yes, happy happy days. Uh, You said it was 60 years ago, which makes me feel very old, which I am. And the reason it makes me feel very old is that uh, while the E-Type was being designed and developed, I was actually working for Jaguar as a young graduate training engineer, and uh, I saw the car, if you like, blossoming, from from a rather scruffy original what was going to be a race car into a nearly ready production car and in fact i did uh, to my pleasure design one or two last minute bits and pieces for the road car yes we've already said before on this podcast that if anyone has trouble fitting an exhaust system to an e-type ah. it's your fault <laughs> it's my fault yeah. um but you know as an apprentice in coventry at the time were you aware of the ripples going through the company on how this car had been received yeah i've got to go back a little bit in history then because in those days of course we didn't have a rapacious media out there who were looking for spy pictures and everything and uh, I don't think many people at all, particularly in, in Europe, I don't think many people at all had even seen this car until it appeared. And so uh, you said it was launched by Sir William in front of the world's press. A lot of them saw it for the first time and there was, a, there was an awful lot of jaw-dropping went on because the looks of the E-Type were dramatically different from anything else that was being produced by a supercar manufacturer. And I'm not going to run them down at all, but can you consider... The, the difference in shape of an E-Type compared with what must be its competitor, 250 GT Ferrari road car, how very different it was. Yeah, and also when you compare the difference in purchase price between those two cars as well, because relatively speaking, the E-Type was, well, cheap. Indeed, uh, such that there were those of us who worked on the design who thought, one day I can afford one of these... We were wrong, but (laughs) we would like to afford one, yes. Let's look back at the story of how they launched it at Geneva. Uh, This week, amazingly, 60 years ago, they probably had no idea, I'm sure, that it would become the British icon, both in terms of automotive products and general design that it has become over time. But you might be familiar, listeners, with the story of Norman Dewis, of course, taking 77RW, the convertible E-Type, across Europe on that epic marathon drive but actually there was someone who did it before him and it was Bob Berry and he'd already done this because the car that was first to the Geneva Mode Show was 9600 HP the E-Type Coupe and he travelled an epic 800 miles in 17 hours to get that car 
there on time for that big unveiling in front of the press on the press day at the Geneva Motor Show. I've got to ask, Graham, why not just take it in a lorry? <laughs> <laughs> you said it was the 17 hours that mattered. Um, again, to remind myself, I think those two cars, and I'm sorry I've forgotten the registration numbers, but you quoted them correctly. Those two cars were the, the latest two production-ready, oven-ready prototypes, if you like, and therefore they had to be shown uh, because there was nothing else that was really smart enough to do so. They were working on the cars till the last minute, and then they had to be got out to Geneva. Now, in those days, there were very few auto routes at all in France, certainly none in the middle bit, getting down to Geneva. Uh, and it would have taken a week to, to go through all the rigmaroles of legislation and getting a truck and everything. So Sir William being Sir William said, oh, Berry, Berry, he never called people by Christian names. Oh, he said, Berry will take it down. So Berry would take it down. And I have to tell you that it's apparently true that he arrived uh, the, the morning before the launch. He arrived panting to be met by Sir William. So you've got it dirty, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, there were a few clues, I think, that Sir William Lyons kind of understood what sort of reaction it might get because he was quite a modest and almost shy retiring character, wasn't he? But in fact, for this launch... He took all the journalists, and there were, as I said, about 200 of them, to a restaurant just outside Geneva with the lake as a backdrop. And there the unveiling was done, and he actually delivered the launch speech. And relatively speaking for Sir William Lyons, that was quite unusual, wasn't it? It was, and he wasn't, he wasn't the great I am, he wasn't the great tub thumper, and you're, you're absolutely right, he was... He was a modest millionaire in, in, in so many ways. What you also have to remember, I think, and I hope I'm getting my timing right, the last big Jaguar launch before the E-Type came along had been about two years earlier, which would be, yes, the Mark II. The Mark II was two years earlier. So Jaguar had really had nothing much to shout about for two years, and I think maybe he thought it was time to be just a little bit more pushy. It was going to be very vital to that company's future, and he wanted to do it properly. can also remember that when he did launch the car, one or two people, they say, including Enzo Ferrari, said, this is the most beautiful road car we've ever seen. There was, I guess, some nervousness because... E.W. Rankin, who very famously was the press officer at Jaguar at the time, had tipped the press off at the beginning of March in 1961 and basically did this by sending them an embargoed brochure through the post and basically said, you're not to talk about this with anyone until the 15th of March when we unveil it at Geneva. But having looked at that literature it does actually say these models are in addition to the current range of jaguar cars and will supplement the xk150 models now in production you would have thought that they would have been a direct replacement what are your thoughts on why that was double speak comes to mind because the the xk150 was just about to go out of production there was no way it was going to live for long and i can tell you having worked there there wasn't space either there wasn't production line space at Browns Lane to have more than one line of sports cars. There were, there were maybe two lines for the Mark IIs. There was one line for the Mark Tens, Mark Ten saloon that was uh, just launched and everything. There was one line only for sports cars. So double speak comes to mind. But there was a stock to be moved of the uh, of the XK150, which is a great car. 
but in fact it was a, it was a bit old fashioned you know the design of that car went right back to the XK120 of 1948 all of these things that tip the press off and build the excitement around that launch all worked because such was the demand for test drives and for photo opportunities with that car that well basically uh, uh, Barry couldn't keep up with it all nor could the car and they had to put a phone call into Coventry and get our man Norman Dewis to do another epic drive across Europe. And and the legend goes, and I did ask Norman about this when he was still with us, that um, and he confirmed it to be true, he was basically on the track in 77RW around the Myra test track, setting things up and doing test laps on it. And they basically just ripped all the test rig gear out of the passenger seat and off he went. <laughs> well, that's quite so, and which proves what I was saying, that, that it was a working prototype and norman he's told the story often he i won't say he dined out on it because it was true but he he's told the story often that he did that so he left myra in the afternoon more or less packed a briefcase with a toothbrush and said to his wife goodbye i'll see you in a few days and set off from the middle of coventry to go to geneva uh, towards the end of the afternoon it is a matter of known fact that he left coventry at about four o'clock on the afternoon and he arrived in geneva the following morning in mid-morning to be met yet again by Sir William saying we've only just got time to clean it up before before it goes on display. So it's true, it's all absolutely true and Norman said he he probably learnt more about the car in that uh, 12-hour trip than he'd learnt in the previous two years. And we must put this into context because it's all too easy to imagine these things through modern times but remember this, it's a 1960s prototype sports car. It's March... And there are none of the auto routes or motorways that you enjoy when you drive across Europe now. So when he reached, you know, the Alps and and the border with Switzerland, he would have been faced with snowbound Alpine passes to get round and pretty rough and ropey roads all the way there. Yeah, he did once say he was very lucky with the weather and that it just so happened that it wasn't too bad in the last hour into Geneva, because I'm sure you know you've been to Geneva. Geneva is... uh, on the end of the, that lovely lake, and um, all around it there are mountains. But he, he was lucky. Of course, the, the other thing he makes clear to people is, don't forget, he said it might only be, shall we say, 700 miles from Coventry to Geneva only. <laughs> but he said, I had, say, an hour to wait at Dover before I could get on a ferry. This is during the evening. Then it was 90 minutes across. Then it was half an hour. He lost three hours doing nothing but crossing the channel. So this this was an incredible run, and I once said to him, did you go rather quickly? And he grinned at me as only Norman would. He said, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he was lucky as well that uh, they held the ferry back for him because they uh, realised what the car was and they were excited to see it. Um, loads of stories about that. Um, but um, as you look back on your time at Jaguar at that time, were you aware of the hype? Were you aware of the excitement within the offices at Jaguar at the time? Yeah, it wasn't by any means the primary car in the drawing. The drawing office wasn't enormous in those days. We probably had 40 or 50 drawing boards. We all used, you know, we all used pencils and paper in those days. We had about 40 or 50 people there who, who had been working on the Mark IIs, and that was a big project. They were then heavily involved in the new Mark X, which is the big saloon, which wasn't quite ready for launch. So the E-Type definitely was not number one priority. Now, the way the E-Type design was done was that it, 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 is, it is often said wrongly that the car was designed by Malcolm Thayer, which is wrong. 
the, the shape of the car was designed by Malcolm Sayer, yes. But what happened underneath the skin was, was several people who mattered very importantly. The main chassis designer was a, a man called Tom Jones, who was very good at, uh, at uh, the hardware. And, of course, the, the usual engine work was going on separately. So it came, it came along very quickly, but it didn't come along as number one priority. And this is why things like I got this much publicized job of designing the road car exhaust system in a week towards the end because somehow or other they hadn't got round to doing it. And um, if Jaguar hadn't had the uh, genius of Malcolm Sayer to design the shape of the car, uh, it would also have taken months longer because Jaguar's stylist, as I'm sure you know, was Sir William. And Sir William would have taken an awful long time to get it right Whereas he knew that if Malcolm Sayers said, it's got to look like this, it had. And that took a lot of time out of the programme. Graham, it's always brilliant to have you on. It's always brilliant to talk E-types with you. And what a momentous occasion it was then, 15th of March, 1961. The Geneva Motor Show, when the British icon, the Jaguar E-type, was born. Graham, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Before I go, let me just say that uh, even even when the car was launched, as a young designer, I still hadn't had a chance even to sit in a car or drive it. And it, it was probably months before I did. And my goodness, when I eventually got the chance to sit in there and drive it, I thought, well, it's all been worthwhile. I, I wish I'd designed all of it myself. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Well, on this week's Hall of Fame... There was only one person we could dedicate this to. He was the voice of motorsport, not for just one generation, but for several. It was, of course, Murray Walker, who died aged 97 very recently on the 13th of March 2021. And Richard's here to talk about him, of course. And Richard, a great loss, but wow, what a career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the whole nation mourned when the news came through that Murray had passed because you, whether you loved another race or whether you didn't, you couldn't have not been aware of the great and legendary Murray Walker. Uh, he was an, an amazing character with an amazing career, really. And of course, he came from motor racing stock. His father, uh, I believe, was a works Norton rider back in the TT in the old days. And Murray really, from that early point of having his father involved in racing, just took a, a shine and a passion to it. And it stayed with him throughout his entire life. And uh, I think I hadn't seen him for uh, three or four years, but I have to be honest and say the smile never ever lost his face. Whenever you talked about motor racing, he would light up and you could talk for ages about any particular given subject. Before motorsport, he had an incredible career in the military, didn't he? Which I only really found yeah. out about later on. Yeah, when you, and this is why I say this this particular section is quite a difficult one because there were so many articles, and even including yourself, you wrote a great obituary to him the other day. And I think that this, there's a lot of history in there that if you're a Murray fan, it's worth looking back because he did indeed have a very distinguished military career. And at the Goodwood Revival... I remember seeing him at the event there dressed in his in his old period military uniform. And for an old boy, you know, approaching his 80s at that time, he, he looked as sharp then as he did in the days when he was actually in the military. Absolutely. Well, it was at Goodwood that I met him, had the pleasure of uh, sitting next to him and having him having a chat with him about motorsport. And uh, it was at Goodwood where it all began for Murray Walker when he did his first uh, audition for the BBC. And it was the Goodwood Easter Monday race in 19... 19- 49 that's how long he's been commentating on motorsport and of course he started commentating with his dad 
He did indeed. And in fact, I was looking back today over some of his earlier histories as well. And it, I think I'm right in saying that he, he, he did occasional commentaries across a real spread of motorsport, but it wasn't until actually 78 that he got formally involved on a regular basis with the BBC for the coverage of Grand Prix, was it? That's right. Yeah, of course, his dad passed away uh, mid-60s and um, yeah, he came back and eventually of course took on another partnership which um although he got on very well with his dad on air the next partnership well he didn't get on with james hunt at all did he initially <laughs> no they did have their moments i mean james it's another story altogether but james was an, a fascinating character fiercely intelligent very well portrayed in the film rush um but of course James was one of those people who he, he'd lived his life full of adrenaline, is a quote that I've seen somewhere, you know, um, attributed to him. And of course, Murray was, you know, ramrod straight. He was, he, was, he was a Christian man in the sense of the word. And I think James turning up, you know, with his holy jeans and flip-flops on, sort of smoking a cigarette with a bottle of wine in his hand two minutes before the start of the Grand Prix, the first time he walked in the country box, the atmosphere would have been palpable, that's for sure. <laughs> well, it was that famous moment where um, they actually had a punch-up in the commentary box very nearly over the fact that in those days you had to share microphones and Murray wouldn't give James the microphone and there was a bit of argy-bargy. But I think it was that chemistry, actually, that kind of tension, that argument almost that you were listening in on that made that such brilliant to listen to on air. You are absolutely right. And in fact, that incident you're talking about James got so, I won't use the expression, James got so fed up with it that he grabbed the microphone cable and he whiplashed it and it, it pulled the microphone out of Murray's hand. And of course, that led to a bit of conflict between them. I mean, to be fair, and if you think they commentated from 1980 until 93 together, the only time I ever saw Murray a little bit angry, James failed to make one race and I can't remember which one it was. It may have been Spa. And Murray did virtually the entire commentary on his own with Mike Dudes and the journalist providing, you know, lap times and information and passing things across the table and at the end of that event Murray was was pretty angry but in the main if you look back and I was looking at some tapes of earlier races uh, with the two of them commentating it was electrifying you know you heard the sound of Fleetwood Max the chain on BBC you knew what was coming yeah. and instead of the huge build-ups that we have today they would literally do a two or three minute build-up straight to the grid the race would be off and there they were with very little technology to back them up providing that incredible commentary. Well, he was a commentator that was in the old school sense of it, in the sense that he shared his passion with the audience and he got emotionally involved. He made mistakes, uh, the famous Murrayisms and the curse of Murray Walker when he was saying that they were doing brilliantly and then they'd have an off. That was mm. all the personality that he brought to Formula One and Formula One needs that kind of personality to carry it through at times. It does and I was looking back actually, the first time I ever, well obviously when I started in Grand Prix racing, clearly I knew who Murray was and uh, you know, I introduced myself to him and at the end of the 84 season, my first year with McLaren, uh, he and James came to a very small studio in London and I'd put together a outtake of VHS video clips and James and Murray did the commentary. And it was quite amazing. James turned up with his Alsatian dog, you know, uh, Oscar. Literally, James dressed in a pair of shorts and flip-flops and things and a T-shirt on a cold winter's day in a studio in London. Murray came in very dapper. And I literally said to them, right, I'll show you. And they both looked at me and said, you don't need to do that. How long is it? I said, about 18 minutes. They said, fine, press the record button. And off we went. And there were these comical moments or strange moments from each race of the season featuring Williams, McLaren, everybody else. And these two put together a commentary and at the end of it, they said, good, that's it. Come on, Wesley, let's go and have some lunch. 
and it was it was magic to watch because there was no script there was no rehearsal they were just capable of doing that job brilliant well there were some key moments i think from murray walker's career and I mean, for me, his, his, the sound of his voice is just synonymous with Sunday afternoons, Sunday roast wafting on the air, you know, watching the Grand Prix and just being spellbound and enthralled by the sport. Um, and mm, the thing that yeah. really sticks in my mind of hearing Murray Walker was that famous moment in 1996 at Suzuka when Damon Hill won the World Championship. What are your memories of that? Murray had lived through uh, Damon's father Graham's successes and had always commentated, you know, in that era. And when Damon was growing, coming up through the ranks, Formula Ford, etc., I think there was probably a time in Murray's career, he's actually said this, when he didn't know whether whether Damon had the right stuff. And they became incredibly close. They were, you would always see Murray with his infamous little notebook sitting down with Damon in the paddock and talking. But of course, uh, in 94, when, when we'd lost the Drivers' Championship due to Damon and Michael Schumacher having a clash in the hairpin at Adelaide onto the main straight, Murray was very upset by that. And you could see that as Damon got his confidence, started to win more races post-Senna 95 and into the 96 season, he was a huge supporter. And that, that emotion that you hear, I'm going to stop talking now because I've got a lump in my throat, and his voice began to break. That has to be one of the most memorable moments of a world champion crossing the line in my books. It was one of those moments where you got to hear the moment at which cars going round in circles starts to really mean something. And for me, that was a golden moment in broadcasting. And that was what Murray Walker brought, wasn't it? He brought mm. the emotion to motorsport, to the everyday person watching. He also brought some amazingly funny moments. <laughs> Again, I was looking back over my files in 1987. You may remember, you were a young man then. At the Osterreich ring, basically, Mansell had won the race. And he and Tio Fabio, who was driving a Benetton, got in the back of the uh, the car to take them on their victory lap. Nigel bent down in the in the car to pick his helmet up and hand it over the side of the car to one of the Williams mechanics. And as he stood up, the, the, the car they were travelling in, the Jeep they were travelling in, went under a girder and hit Nigel right on the top of the head. I mean, it could have been very serious, you know. And he had a huge bruise, this enormous bruise right across his hairline on his forehead. And immediately after the live race, they went straight to Murray interviewing <laughs> Uh, Nigel and then Murray said to him can you take your cap off and show us that terrible bruise and Murray meaning to point at it got his measurements wrong and he poked Nigel straight in this enormous bruise on his head and the, <laughs> M Nigel's face he wanted to say something and Murray went oh I'm sorry about that anyway how did you carry on with the rain it was literally flawless but it's there on YouTube and you can see this wonderful <laughs> moment and another time I remember so well I was in Adelaide sharing a podium with him and Dan Bradshaw the legendary PR officer from Williams and latterly you know, everybody who's ever been in motor racing. And we were being hosted by the wine impresario, the German uh, Wolf Blass, Wolfgang Blass. And Wolf had a very strange sense of humor. And he came into this luncheon with over 200 people, charity luncheon, to hear Maria talk and me to do a little bit of backup or warm up. And he was wearing a German officer's helmet with an enormous spike on the top, first world war helmet. And as he came in, everyone was applauding and Murray just looked at me and uh, quietly behind his hand, he said, I don't think my father would approve of this moment. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he was a, a wonderful man. He was deserving of the OBE. And I think Martin Brundle probably summed it up very, very well in the hundreds, if not thousands of comments that have been online since Murray's passing. He just said, rest in peace, Murray Walker. A wonderful man in every respect, a national treasure, a communications genius, and a Formula One legend.
RIP Murray Walker. Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Like all car clubs, the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club lives by the incredible input from its volunteers and someone who's put many, many hours and days and years into the Jaguar Enthusiast Club is Peter Purdom and he joins me now. Hi, Peter. Morning, Wayne. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. Give us a potted CV of your JEC life up until this point. Well, I first joined the JEC, I went on a an entente cordiale to France and met a, a number of JEC members, one of whom uh, came from our local region in Warwickshire. Um, And so he um, is to blame for pretty much everything that followed. Um, John Shorrocks and his wife, Jenny, who we met. Um, And uh, he persuaded me that if I was um, driving an E-type Jaguar, that I really needed to be a member of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. So it started from there. Um, And uh, after that, Um, I joined the local region and eventually took over from John as chairman of the Warwickshire region and then was persuaded to join the operations committee and then subsequently the board of the of the JEC. Um, I have uh, had one spell as as chairman um, and now I'm still on the board as a non-executive director. And you've also done a lot of work with providing the liaison really between the club and Jaguar themselves haven't you and you've uh, made some real good inroads to the club in that sense. Yes um, uh, over over the years I've got to know a number of people at uh, at Jaguar um, particularly on the JLR classic side when when that first got made a point of uh, of developing relationships with um, with JLR classic um, and they, they've been a great support to us over, over the years since then. Let's go right the way back to the beginning for you, Peter, and the start of your automotive life, if we'll call it that. And you've had a career in the motor industry, haven't you? And it all began at Rolls-Royce uh, years ago. Tell us how it all started there. Uh, well, actually, at Rolls-Royce, it was on the aero engine side. Um, I, I was an apprentice at Rolls-Royce. In fact, while well, I was an apprentice at uh, what was initially Bristol Sidley, which was then taken over by Rolls-Royce. So without moving, I'd worked for two companies, uh, but ended up as a, an indentured apprentice from, from Rolls-Royce on the aero engine side, um, and then moved on from, from them uh, in the year 1971. Um, to British Leyland on the on the car side, and cars are always a feature of your life. I'm guessing. Yes, yes. Um, uh, my elder brother and I have both been crazy car enthusiasts since I can I can remember. We actually started with MGs rather than Jaguars because Jaguars were certainly at that time way out of reach as far as as far as we were concerned financially. But we started with with MGs. Richard had a, a YB, the saloon car, and I had a, a, a TC. In fact, it, it, it 
I only discovered after I bought the car that it was actually the 13th one made, um, according to the chassis number. So, um, yeah, MGYB uh, TC, the XPAG engine is very familiar to me to, to, to this day. And then we moved on from, from that to Richard had an MG, um, MGA twin cam um, and a MGB um, and so on. So we, yeah, MGs was our first love, if you like, but because we could afford them in those days, you only had to pay 25 quid for an MGYB. <laughs> had Jaguars turned your head by that point? Were they something you were aware of or were they sort of not in your consciousness as a, as a young man? Oh, no, they were very much in my consciousness because um, uh, I had two uncles that were architects and, and I remember I, I, I probably was... I don't know, 11 or 12 at the time. Um, and they ran a, an architect's practice down on the outskirts of London. And they both had Mark 9 Jaguars, which I thought were fantastic. So that was my first introduction to Jaguars. And I can still remember sort of sitting inside these cars and the, the smell of the leather and the, and the walnut dashboard and all of that was pretty impressive to a, an 11-year-old boy. It's incredible the impression that leaves on you, isn't it, for the rest of your life. Just that, And it can only be one fleeting experience sometimes, but it sticks with you forever. And if I needed a Tiger Moth Magneto sorting out, Peter, I'm guessing you'd be the man to help me out because uh, work, working on the Rolls-Royce Aero side, you must have learned all sorts of skills. Yeah, I'm not sure that any of them are terribly useful now. <laughs> Not sure how many Tiger Moths there are out there, but yeah, the Gypsy Major engine, which went in the in the Tiger Moth, I uh, I sort of cut my teeth on as a as an apprentice in the uh, in the fitting area, and uh, yeah, I mean I've always had a love of mechanical things, uh, but uh, so yeah, if 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 anybody wants to get in touch with me, uh, they're, they're welcome. And that love of mechanical things, was it something that had, had come through your family? Was there previous generations of petrol heads in the Purdom family? I mean, interestingly enough, my, my dad hadn't got a clue. Um, <laughs> he absolutely hadn't got a clue. Um, and it was just my elder brother and I. And if I look back, I've really no idea why, but we just, we just loved um, with motorbikes and, and then into cars, yeah. Well, of course, 1971 saw the bankruptcy of Rolls-Royce. And as you mentioned before, you then moved on to British Leyland. Did it feel at the time like it was out of the frying pan and into the fire? Were you aware of the problems that were coming down the line then? Well, yes. Some of my unkind friends uh, did say to me that I was simply going from one bankruptcy to another. Um but I enjoyed my time at, at British Leyland, and I spent most of my time at British Leyland in the truck and bus side of the business, which, which actually was the very profitable side. Um, and was, uh, it was um, Lord Stokes that ran the truck and bus division, who was persuaded, I think, by the government that he needed to take over the car side of the, of the business. That was before my time, but um, 
So I think I think he was probably a reluctant owner of the car business as opposed to the trucks and buses that he was very familiar with. He's a very uh, controversial character because on the one hand, you'll find many people that would say he saved British Leyland at the time, kept it going for longer than it probably should have done. And then there are others that would blame him with its demise. Which side of the fence would you sit on with that argument? Um, I think it was a poison chalice, to be honest. Um, and, and I think... Um, it was probably more than anybody at the time was was able with the resources that were made available to make a, a success of. And it wasn't really until um, the time when Michael Edwards came in as as chairman of, uh, of, of British Leyland that it, it started to get sorted out. And interestingly, a number of people from senior management in the truck and bus division went to the car division um, to, to sort it out, people that I, I knew very, very well at the time, yeah. We get a view of what it was like being an employee through sort of historical eyes of British Leyland. And you, you kind of get this <laughs> this vision of pretty depressing days, really. Most of them spent stood around a brazier. But um, I do know that you got quite a sexy company car during your time, didn't you? Oh, I did, yes. Yeah, I mean, my when, when I rose to the whatever grade level it was where you were allowed a company car, um, my first company car when uh, it was in the early days of our marriage uh, was a, a TR6, uh, which was an absolutely supercar once it was sorted out. Despite the problems that, you know, through the company car scheme, you could get a straight six, two and a half litre sports car. That's, that's fantastic. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And then uh, when prams came along, we, we progressed to a Dolomite Sprint, which I also thought was a very nice little car. Pioneering in its day, really, for what would become the hot hatch scene that followed it. First 16-valve engine on the market 16 valve engine and so on yeah absolutely well from the brits you then went to work for french company didn't you peter tell us about those days um yeah i was um um i was asked to join the peugeot citroen group um and um, initially worked specifically with citroen um, for for some years, I was with the group for about fifteen years, I suppose altogether. Um, but it was a fascinating uh, company to work for, um, and particularly because the the person that I worked for was a, a great visionary as far as the car industry was concerned. And um, within Citroen, I learnt a huge amount in terms of manufacturing technology. Um, the way that they produced their hydraulic systems for suspension and braking systems, full power systems, uh, was absolutely amazing at the time. And in discussion with, um, with other car companies that I had a lot of dealings with, um, they couldn't believe that within the Citroën complex, there was, there was no selective assembly at all as far as their hydraulic systems were concerned, which was unheard of at the time. They had quite a name for it at the time, because I guess that would have been sort of Citroen BX time, would it? Yes, or, or even earlier than that. I mean, the, 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 original, um, the original system was tested out originally on the Light 15s, yeah. um, and then on to the ID, the DS, and, and so on. Uh, the BX came along later, um, the CX, one of my favourite cars of all time, 
uh, and then on to the XM, which of course had electronic control on the hydraulic system so that it, it um, made it an active system rather than just reactive. There's a bit of a famous uh, auto car test at the time, wasn't there, where they drove over speed bumps to see at which point you could actually feel it through the cabin. <laughs> it was it was quite high speed. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they sort of followed that through to the, the BX of the early 80s. And I can remember a neighbour of ours having one and being a kid and seeing the car popping up and down every time he parked it, you know, and just being fascinated. Of course, we take air suspension and hydraulic suspension for granted now, but it was quite cutting-edge technology then, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. Um, pe- people used to think it was a complex system, but actually it wasn't. It was terribly simple. Uh, and because, as I say, there was no selective assembly, parts were interchangeable, and um, and it was a mechanical system, Um but um, so th- there weren't the complications of electronics at the at the outset. It was only when it came to the XM that they started to overlay electronic controls to the suspension over the top of the of the hydraulic system. You wonder what would have been going through the minds of Jaguar engineers. I wonder if they looked at those cars, given their brief of grace, space and pace, and trying to make luxury cars that rode silently down the road, whether there was any sort of jealous eyes to what Citroen were doing over the years with their hydraulic suspensions. Uh, I mean, I think I I can probably tell you the people that were involved are certainly no longer involved at, at Jaguar, but in the days of the Series 2, um, XJ, they used a, a height correction system on the back of the car, which never really worked. It was a girling system and quite complex. And uh, so we did actually fit um, uh, an XJ with Citroen self-leveling suspension on the on the rear. So it's, I'm sure it's long since gone to the scrapyard in the sky, but uh, that, that was an interesting project until the marketing department at Citroën decided that they really didn't want us to sell um, Citroën suspension to Jaguar because that was a competitor. We were allowed to sell it to Rolls-Royce. That was all right. The motor in history is filled with so many what-ifs. Oh, absolutely. And uh, and so many people don't realise that under the bonnet over the years, there's been a huge amount of cooperation between manufacturers of the hidden components, if you like. And for, for me, that included suspension systems. It included gearboxes where we organised um, a, a licence for manufacturing of a PSA gearbox by what was then Austin Rover at Longbridge uh, and fitted the whole factory out for them. Um, it included PSA diesel engines, um, you know, all of which were were under the bonnet and all you've got to do is to change the rocker cover to say Austin Rover or Rover or Jaguar and nobody knows. I mean, you look at the last days of uh, Triumph, for example, where 
and Rover, in fact, in those late 80s cars where they were basically Hondas in a different frock, weren't they? But that kind of collaboration back then, we take it for granted now. The cars are a hybrid of various different manufacturers coming together. But back then it was quite frowned upon, and especially the Motor Impress. Things like the, I'm just remembering things like the Triumph Acclaim got a real hammering for the fact that they dared to take foreign components on these British cars you know it's incredible to look back on it now well of course you then went into something even more cutting edge in the automotive industry and this is something that I'm sure listeners will be fascinated to hear about how did the journey take you from from hydraulic suspension at Citroen to working with composites Peter it's interesting because at the time um Citroën with the BX, which you've referred to, um, were one of, if not the first uh, volume manufacturer to get involved with the use of composites. So the BX had got a composite bonnet and a composite tailgate, um, and they were produced in high volume. And one of the things that was always said about uh, composite structures um, and and the manufacture of composites is that it's a an industrial process, but it had never ever been industrialized. And uh, Citroen did a lot to make it uh, into an industrial process, and I I got involved in that and became very enthusiastic about it. And subsequently. Uh, Citroën used um, another French company, which was one of their suppliers, to continue the development of composite structures. And I worked with them, ultimately became a shareholder of their their company and looked after all of their um, business outside of, of France. And so we developed the applications of things like SMC, BMC, resin transfer molding um, for a a range of applications where it had always been considered that it was very low volume application. So racing cars uh, where you're using autoclaves to to produce them. I mean, we uh, at one point uh, were producing spoilers for the Ford Fiesta at a thousand parts a day. and, and nobody would have believed it a few years before. So it's a very exciting time, yes. And, of course, it took you on to work with so many huge manufacturers, um, you know, some real big names in your customer list, wasn't there? Talk us through some of them. Well, I mean, we got very involved. Uh, I, I had, for years, with, with my Citroën Association, had been involved with, uh, with Lotus uh, because we supplied Lotus with gearboxes from Citroën um, and, and nobody at the time was aware that the the gearbox from the uh, for the Lotus Esprit came out of a Citroen Fourgonette, which is a, a van basically. So don't tell any Esprit owners that their gearbox actually comes out of a van. And the other thing is, it runs in reverse because uh, the the van had it on the other side. So, um, you know, it had to be changed so that it could run the other way around. Um, So I knew Lotus very well and uh, had been involved with them for a long time. On the hydraulic side, we'd been involved with them on the Formula One side as well, because when they developed their active suspension systems, it used quite a lot of um, 
Citroën componentry, and I knew the, the team very well at that time. Um, and so it was quite easy in that sense because of the contacts to develop the relationship with, with Lotus on composite structures. And ultimately, we produced all of the Lotus uh, bodywork for the what you would call the Series 2 Elise. So the first one was very much a, a sort of hand lay um, composite structure, but the Series 2 um, used proper production tooling um, and, and was produced in France um, and very successfully. So that was, that was the first. We did a lot of work with Aston Martin um, on the development of uh, composite structures and through Aston Martin with Ford, because Aston Martin at that time was owned by Ford. So we developed a lot of, um, with their advanced technology division, both, both in the UK and in the States. Um, we, we had a lot of development work that we did with them. And then uh, subsequently, when McLaren brought out their, um, not their first road car, but the, the one of the most recent batch, which was the MP412C, um, we did the composite uh, structures for for that car as as well. So yeah, there's some some quite exciting companies that that I've I've dealt with, and of course it's involved trying out a number of interesting cars. Yeah, imagine. And again, like we were saying, it's unknown collaborations between people like McLaren and a company derived out of Citroen, and many people would just be quite surprised to hear that, wouldn't they? A, a technology as well as we've heard from Richard West here on the podcast over many weeks, that was a great example of something that was developed for racing and then has made its way onto road cars. And that link again between motorsport and road cars is fascinating. Was it something that you took into account? Did you take data from motorsport in creating some of those those materials? Not specifically, um, because the if you like the control systems uh, that were used by Lotus on their active suspension system um, was developed by Lotus, but needed all of the hydraulic systems behind it uh, to, to work from the electronic control modules, if you like. I mean, the Lotus system, um, I mean, with with the greatest of respect to our mutual friend Richard, um, the Williams system was not an active system. It was a reactive system. And it was originally developed by a company called Automotive Products, which is not far from where I live in Leamington Spa, um, for road uh, car applications. And the guy who developed it was... A, great friend of mine, um, Bob Pitcher, um, and he, again, used a lot of Citroën componentry um, because you could just pick it up and fit it in. You didn't need to do anything else with it. But the, the Lotus system was, was much more complex in that it had uh, electronic controls to it uh, so it could be programmed. Uh, I mean, I remember driving a Lotus Esprit, which was fitted with uh, this electronically controlled suspension system. 
where when you turned into a corner, it tilted into the corner like a motorcycle, which was quite weird. Um, but uh, the, ultimately what they wanted was for the car to remain absolutely flat through the corner so that the, the tread on the road, if you like, was consistent all the way around the track. But it was a, it was a brilliant system, but it was it was very complex in comparison to the Williams one, which was fantastically successful um, and and much simpler. Well, uh, it was successful for the motor industry. It was successful for you, Peter, because ultimately it led to you uh, building a beautiful collection of Jaguars, didn't it? And uh, tell us about the first Jag that you bought. First of all, let's get back to Jags and and take us down that memory lane. That first car that you bought with the Jaguar badge on it. Uh, well, the first one that I bought was an XJS. Um, it was a four-liter coupe. Um, um, I had two. Um, uh, coupes and then subsequently had a one of the last of the what what we now call celebration um, convertibles um, and I, I love the I love the XJS I have to say I still think it's a, a lovely car and my last one is still is still owned by a member of the Warwickshire region so it's uh, it's still around and I still see it and it still looks good um, so yeah that was my the first time that I I, I owned uh, a Jaguar, but um, well, I say that actually no. Um, I I was able to buy the E-Type Jaguar that was rebuilt by Colin Ford for the Practical Classics magazine. Um, it was uh, there was a series that they did. I think it was a spanned over nearly two years of, of Practical Classic magazine where Colin, who, of course, is one of the early members of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club and has, has been a board member before and, and has been a technical advisor for years and, and brilliant knowledge of, of uh, E-types particularly, uh, he rebuilt it and um, a book uh, was subsequently produced on the restoration of the car, uh, which I was able to buy subsequently a couple of years after it was completed and I've still got it to, to this day um, so that's yes my that's my first Jaguar and um, I still think it's the most beautiful car ever mm -hmm. and an XK120 as well in the collection I understand yes I, I, I think it's a bit pretentious to call it a collection but I've got I've got a few cars but the XK120 drophead uh, is a lovely car. It's, uh, it's been seen at a, a number of JEC events and hopefully will be uh, going forward when we can get back to events. Um, and um, it's a car that came back from the States and it was, uh, it was in terrible condition. Um, it doesn't have a lot of history to it, um, but I thought, right, this is the opportunity to make an XK120 exactly how I think it should be. Um, so it was completely restored, but to a very clear specification that, that I set out um, and worked with, uh, with them on. Um, so it's got XK140, 150 rack and pinion steering. It's got disc brakes all round. I kept the MOS box because... Um, I didn't. I didn't want to to lose the feel of a, a 1950s car. I didn't want it to be a modern car, if you like. 
I wanted to be able to use it in today's conditions. But um, and I really like the MOS box, um, strangely enough. But what we did do was to fit um, an overdrive unit on it. So it's got a Laycock overdrive on it, um, which uh, meant we had to change the cross member on the chassis to a 140 cross member so that it had got clearance. Um, and yeah, so I built it up. Um, Suffolk and Turley did all the trimming and hood and and so on. XK Engineering did the the painting of it um, into what I think is a lovely car, really lovely car. And we were talking earlier about how a special moment, and it often can be just a fleeting moment, very short-lived moment, can affect you for the rest of your life in terms of the cars that you buy and the cars that you aspire to own. And I have a feeling that XK120 is a bit like that for you in that because the XK150 has a special memory for you, doesn't it? Oh, it does, yes. <laughs> um, a friend of my father had an XK150 fixed head uh, and he was crazy enough to let me drive it. Um, and I was absolutely determined that I was going to drive this car at 100 miles an hour. Um, and we took it out and I took it down the Watford Bypass. Now, for anybody that knows the Watford Bypass today, I would have to say to you, there weren't any roundabouts at that time. Um, and I drove it down the Watford Bypass as fast as I possibly could and got it showing just over 100 miles an hour. So, yeah, that's a, a vivid memory for me. I could just imagine someone toodling back from the shops in their Morris Minor when that came flying past. <laughs> Quite a shock. But it is, it's moments like that that uh, make us buy the cars and get so passionate about them that we do. And um, it's a moment that so many of us have with Jaguar. Um, and that's why we're here, of course, as Jaguar enthusiasts, as part of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. And as an ex-chairman then, Peter, as you look forward for the club, um, you've obviously seen lots of changes in the classic car world and COVID's brought its own challenges to the club as well. What are your thoughts on the future of the JEC and uh, and how things have, have developed over the previous few years? Uh, well, I'm, in many ways, I'm excited by the future of the JEC now. Um, we've got some new young blood um, that's, that's in the driving seat. We've got James as general manager. We've got Andy that's helping him with in, in, uh, as well. And um, I just think we've got a really bright future to, to look forward to. And I think the challenge is that the club needs to be able to cater, not just for the classic branch of the club and, and you know, us old fogies, if you like, that, that still love the classics, but we need to instill that love of classics into the next generation as well. But we also need to embrace the new technologies that are that are coming along with the with the latest cars and you know the challenges that there are for the automotive industry going forward particularly in terms of um, impact on uh, on the environment um, and all the things that are being done um, electric cars I could talk to you about for for, for ages um, I'm not totally convinced that that is the the solution going forward. Um, I think that um, you know hydrogen cells and um, and so on are need to be looked at as well. There are all sorts of practical issues as far as 
electric cars are concerned and the impact on the environment just of manufacturing them apart from anything else. But I think we need to embrace all of the, of the, of the new um, cars and to have something to offer for the Jaguar owners of today, not just the Jaguar owners of yesterday. And when you look at some of the early um, practical classics magazines, like you mentioned there, from the early 90s, they were restoring these very sought-after classic V12 E-types from the mid-70s. And if you look at the timeline there, they were the same age then as X-types are now. They're 20, 25 years old cars. So the definition of what a classic Jaguar is, is moving all the time, isn't it? Absolutely. And it, it will do going forward. And, um, you know, for the Jaguar brand and, and for others, it's interesting to look at the, the cars of today and, and wonder as to which of today's cars will in 20 years time be considered a classic. Mm. I mean, you mentioned the X-Type. Um, I think it's a great car, um, you know, with with all the, the work that went into that. I mean, you know, the unkind people said, oh, well, it was a reskin Mondeo, but it was more than that. Um, and it is, a, it's, it's a really good car. Um, and in a sense, it's only now that Jaguar is starting to produce cars that, you know, genuinely can replace what was the, the X-Type. But I'd have an X-Type in a, in a shot. I think the shooting brake, for example, is a really practical car and great for carrying my classic car parts around in. Yeah, absolutely. We're in the, a fantastic position within the Jaguar brand, especially now with uh, F-Paces, to have a vehicle model that they offer that covers everything you'd ever need from the motoring world. You know, everything is covered there from an estate to a sports car and everything in between. And it's about embracing all of the people that own those cars, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd love them. I'd love them to make a sport brake version of the XE. Mm. I think that would, I think that would be a supercar. Yeah. I mean, the XF sport brake is a, is a great car, um, but these days I I don't need a car that's as big as that. So an XE sport brake would be brilliant, as far as I'm concerned. Not only do the Jaguar Enthusiast Club have the advantage of having all of these cars that cover daily life, but we are. An affordable brand, actually, and I know that might sound crazy to some people listening to this podcast for the first time, but you know, let's look at the prices some of the cars on the market for. Even X300, XJ6s, what once a premium luxury car, a couple of thousand pounds gets you in the door with an XJ6, and you can join the club and join in all of the things that we enjoy doing, can't you? Absolutely. Uh, and again, great car. I mean, my father-in-law had one of the first series one he actually had the daimler version uh, of the 4.2 i thought it was a brilliant car um should have kept it peter thanks for coming on to the jc podcast and uh, well taking us on a journey through your life in the automotive industry and your your life as a car fan and a jaguar fan it's been great to travel that with you uh, so uh, peter purdom thanks very much for joining us You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes of the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. So we're back in the workshop preparing the XJR ready for the 2021 season. 
So as I said in last week's podcast, we've um, finally got the green light um, that some racing will be going ahead, um, or actually all of the racing so far, providing nothing changes with the plan. Um, but from the 29th of this month, we are able to to go back out on track. So um, as I said, we, we're preparing two cars this season. So I am going to cover um, a little bit on Matthew's car. Matthew's um, new to the championship in a new car of his. So it is the same as my XJR6 to a slightly different specification but um, obviously over the winter um, we we do get a fair amount of time so in between races we only get sometimes two or three weeks um, between each round so we're quite often stuck for what we can do modifications to the car in between time we're always looking to improve and we we do throughout the season so as I said, the car changed massively um, last winter, um, which was the first lockdown. We had months of extra time and all of the, the kind of the extra bits that we wanted to do um, previously that we just didn't have time. We decided to take the car right the way back and, and pretty much redesign a lot, of, a lot of the car for last season. As some of you can probably remember, that was pretty effective and we had a really good car last season. We had a couple of teething issues, um, which we, we managed to pretty much iron out through the season as it went on um, and we just want to really improve on what we already had, had as a good base last season and we just want to add a couple of bits where we can so um, really the target over the winter was firstly um, as always it's something that we always talk about and we're always trying to achieve is to to find a little bit more weight so um, we've managed to to find some extra weight on the car so over winter we just stripped back um, some of more of the body panels there was a couple of other internal bits that we've never actually removed mainly because of time um, so we found about another 20 ki uh, kilograms in weight in the car which is always helpful um, so we are actually adding weight back in the vehicle now so we're restricted to I believe 1400 kilograms and that is driver and fuel so um, at the end of the race um, ultimately you could be weighed at any time you need to be over um, that 1400 kilograms with you as a driver so is what we can do to prepare the car is to go underweight and then obviously add the weight back in where we want it so with the saloon um, being quite a heavy car it's not something that we've actually been able to do um, before and we're always chasing that um, so now we are adding a little bit of weight in over the rear end which is where we need it so um, we are trying to achieve a nearly 50 50 balanced car um, which we are extremely close so that's one of the the winter products we've been chipping away with that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.